We How do you it. talk about the thing you love most in this world? Well, we have to say hi first. Mm. Oh, yeah. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> this is Public Health in Action. We're Mel and Keely. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> Still here. Right, yeah. Still here. That's that's how about all the last few months have yeah. felt. Yeah. Yep. Should we address the elephant in the room though? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we probably should just hit it real quick and then just move right past it. Yeah. You can't, can you you can't even can't, say it out loud. I, can't, I don't wanna admit it. You don't uh, I don't wanna the first step in grief is acceptance. Is acceptance. What right? are the other ones? Acceptance. Food, crying, <laughs> sleep. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm yeah, I'm still at the at, at the first step. <laughs> still getting there. But um Bill and Melinda Gates. <laughs> say it with me. Bill and Melinda, Melinda Gates. Gates. Yeah. Broke up. Broke up. And I don't believe in love anymore, but we're fine. We're fine. I'm not okay, actually. But. I feel like you're the you're the dog with the coffee mug surrounded by fire, what? saying this is fine. You haven't seen that meme before. Oh yeah, I have. Everything's fine. Like the house is burning. Fine, yeah. in the it's just like you're smiling in the front. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's. I just wanted to say thank you to literally all of my friends that texted me when the news came out. It was literally like my phone was receiving messages at a rate that I have not had in a while. (laughs) And everyone was sending me links to articles and just being like, hey, did you hear? Are you doing okay? How are you? Just wanted to see if you're all right. Please let me know. It was just heartbreaking. I actually, like, (laughs) I wanted you to find it naturally, (laughs) which is why I didn't. And then when you did, I just was like, how, how are you doing? (laughs) But I mean, you've had, you know, some exciting things too, like new job, new bike. Yeah, I got a new bike. Um, and it's been a really long time since I've ridden a bike and I didn't know that, I don't know what they're called, street bikes. I wasn't aware that they don't have (laughs) kickstands. So I'm basically relearning how to ride a bike. (laughs) All because of the kickstand or all of it? Just, yeah. It's like riding a bike, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Except I am kind of a little afraid to start riding in the street. It's so different when you're an adult versus when you're a kid. Right, there's less fear when you're a kid. Yeah. Because you're just so jazzed about being on a bike. I also had brothers that would be like, there's a car, watch out. Yeah. And now it's just me riding by myself, like, with my AirPods. Like, you got your little rear view mirror, though, I on do. those handlebars. I do have a mirror. I also have a, um, a taillight. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we're in a good city for learning about it, though. Like, bike riding? Yeah. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I went to college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I've had friends multiple friends from college get injured because the streets are not set up there like they are here right for cycling one of my friends got a door of a parked car open on her and she flipped over it she was fine bruised up but yeah 
Was she wearing a helmet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wear your helmet. Wear your helmet. Public, Public health, health in action. <laughs> we should actually do an episode on that. There's a lot of... Um... On wearing a helmet? Yeah, I know it's kind of, like, funny to joke about, but there's actually, like, talking about the programs for, yeah. like, promoting bike helmets. <laughs> okay. <It's>, I actually <laughs> studied that. I'm not going to lie. It sounds like a 90s, like, PSA. It kind of was. That, like, a Disney Channel star would give. The program that I know about, it's, like, a neurosurgeon um, wanted to decrease um, traumatic head injuries and uh, came out with, like, this whole public health program on wearing a bike helmet, and it was just incredible. That'd be cool to look at, like, programs. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a variety of them. Yeah, there are. And you've had big things happen, big new things. You turned 80. I turned 80 this <laughs> this in May. April. April. Oh. It is shit. May, currently. <laughs> That's the month we're in. Can we scratch that from As well room? as my middle name. Nope, we're keeping it. <laughs> I, know. I looked at you and I was like, <laughs> I actually was thinking about your middle name. <laughs> you know, thanks, Ma. You made it real confusing. <laughs> Yes, I turned 80. Not really, but I got one of the best of, birthday, birthday cards ever, which just on the front says, you're 80, and all I can say is wow. <laughs> which, to be honest, a couple of times looking at this card, I've read it like the Owen Wilson. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you had your birthday. Had my I birthday. Think, yeah. Your friends gave you, like, the coolest um, gifts that I think really speak to your personality. Like, someone gave you, um, Caitlin gave you the Spice Girls record. Yeah, Spice Girls vinyl. I didn't think that was a thing. I know. But it's... It's going to make cleaning the apartment so much more fun. So much more fun. Yeah, Yeah. just throw that on. Yeah. Yeah. Or it will be more of a distraction because I will be doing the moves from the music videos (laughs) because I definitely remember them. Years of my cousin Alyssa and I what practicing. Doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been like a big. It's like, just been a few months like, here. Yeah, um, because it's been a four four months since we've yeah. done an episode. But I think, you know, looking back, like so much time has passed. But it's this weird situation where it feels like. None has passed. Yeah, where like nothing has happened when in reality a lot's happened. And then. Especially in terms of like the country, like vaccinations becoming more available. Like. Right. We were at the very start of that when our last episode came out. Yeah. When. And the insurrection happened. Mm hmm. Was that at the beginning of January? That was was, like right around the same time. yeah, Yeah. 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 And vaccinations and. Yeah. And all, just... all of it. Like, a lot has gone down since. Both yeah. personally, na- nationally, worldwide. Emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> Always emotionally with us. Metaphysically. <laughs> <laughs> but we're excited. We're so excited about this episode. And yeah. to be back in a groove with recording knock and wood, creating knock yes knock <laughs> i don't know if this is real wood <laughs> that i just knocked <laughs> quick find some real wood 
Um, um, no, I mean, social media is such a powerful resource. Yeah, um, definitely. We connected with another public health podcast called Public Health Insight, and they are from Canada. And the podcaster that runs it, his name is Gordon Thane. And we had a really great connection with him. So we have an interview with him for this episode. Yeah, he's just like the coolest guy. It was such a good conversation. It felt so good to not only talk about the things we talked about, but like have that shared passion outside of our living room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so what else? I feel like we, yes, and I feel like we learned a lot. You learned how to pronounce Ontario. Oh, no. I I think there might be a few times in the interview where I said Ontario (laughs) because I'm a world traveler. Such a world traveler. I mean, I have the benefit of having lived kind of somewhat close to Ontario. I'm so much of a local person it's not even funny i want to travel i just i've been to vancouver canada once once me too when i was in middle school and then other than that i haven't traveled i was nine and i think i was there for like an eight hour day did you go to the spaghetti factory there because that's like no no i just i think we went a big thing There's a spaghetti factory, like, across town from us right now. I don't know. My class, when we went there, we went to the spaghetti factory. (laughs) Canada. Beautiful country. Spaghetti factories everywhere. (laughs) And the geese. Wow. 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 Um, But anyway... (laughs) transition back to Gordon it was a fantastic conversation we're really excited to share it with you and before we dive into that we just wanted to share like a little little short bio of about Gordon yeah Gordon is currently a health promotion specialist in Ontario Canada focusing on creating community (laughs) mental health and suicide prevention strategies he serves on the board of directors at St. Leonard's Community Services, London and Region, which I do want to say that London can't, like, London is a place in Canada, too. I want to clarify that. Oh, okay. For anybody who's thinking. I mean, I'm a world traveler, main, so main. I... <laughs> For anybody who's like, oh, London, England. No, <laughs> still Canada, where he provides his public health expertise to enhance programs, policy, and decision-making. He has worked with the National Collaborating Center for Infectious Diseases on several research and knowledge translation projects to support national antimicrobial stewardship programs. Mm-hmm. He has a Bachelor of Medical Science with an honor specialization in microbiology and immunology and a Master of Public Health, both from Western University. Gordon has been interviewed by various Canadian media networks, such as AM800 Radio, CTV News, and City News Toronto, to talk about a variety of issues such as COVID-19 infection and control, as well as COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy in Black communities. And that actually, those one of those articles is what brought this discussion to happen. Right. We were talking about vaccine vaccine hesitancy among the Black community in uh, Canada. Yeah. Yeah. 
And tying it to vaccine hesitancy here. Yes. And just the narrative that's playing out about that. Yeah, and what that actually mm-hmm. means, too. Right. Because it's not a sing- singular, literal definition right. of what hesit- hesitancy is. Right. Here's our interview with Gordon Thane from Public Health Insight. My name is Gordon Thane. Um, I'm currently a health promotion specialist uh, for a public health um, unit in Ontario, Canada. Um, My primary focus there is on uh, mental health, suicide prevention strategies. And um, with COVID, my work has shifted to be um, now a lot more involved in vaccine communications, um, COVID-19 communications, uh, and infection prevention control for local workplaces in my area. Um, so it's a bit of, it's a probably a lot more work than I can kind of take on, but you know, there's, there's a lot of work and not enough people to do the work. So you you end up a lot of people take on more than they probably should, but it's important work. And another thing I've done recently is, um, I'm also, um, on the, um, I serve on the board of directors for, um, St. Leonard's Community Services, um, in London and, in, in my role there, we primarily work to enhance programs and policy and decision-making um, regarding a lot of those um, community programming around people who are justice-involved and just to um, support them in their journey to um, have a more impactful uh, place in society, um, reduce the stigma, uh, give them a supportive environment. Um, so that's something I started in uh, last year, October, so October 2020. And I was just looking for ways to get involved after, you know, 2020 was a rough year on all fronts. Yep. Uh, there's not much yep. positive to come out of it. So I wanted to get involved, more involved. Um, so, yeah, I pursued that role. And I think I'm, I I think I was the youngest person they've ever appointed to the board. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I'm grateful for that opportunity to be more involved in, you know, advocacy work, community work mm-hmm. and just have my leave my little blueprint on society but yeah i could go on and on but um yeah um if you want me to but that's incredible I'll, yeah, I can that's, stop there. let's end the episode right, right there, there. <laughs> <We're done>. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah so yeah. i mean thanks yeah. for sharing all of that about yourself that's so incredible and obviously like mel said incredibly mm. important work um and i think goes into to mm. like we said before like not just those like ideas of advocacy and access like that is one of the Mm -hmm. main overlaps for us too in like public health and education right it's like but at the same time right uh we we've done a couple episodes on even things like anti-racism um how to get involved in advancing equity um so we can have more equality and all and those those sort of topics but it's also important to i feel like a lot of times people think that um, the only form of meaningful impact you can do is if you go out and protest, if you call your lawmakers. But I would say, you know, you could start at your workplace. Yeah. Um, diversity, your workplace in theory is a place that you know the people well enough, you're fairly comfortable. Obviously, there's different challenges with different uh, situations, but um, maybe you're more comfortable mentioning to your boss that, hey, there's there's lack of diversity here. Um, it doesn't represent our community, and I would appreciate if 
active steps were taken to address it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, community, if each community has that same level of um, activism, and then, you know, we sum it up, then we can have a global impact. But people feel like I have to get this policy passed to have any um, reform or change or else anything I done what did was meaningless. But I always say, even in your own friend circles, challenge, someone might say something yeah. off, just say this is not, maybe this was fine before, it's no longer acceptable. And that's a, that's those little small things can add up and make a big impact. I feel like, you know, it's also two ends of the spectrum. It's mm-hmm. either you could do that or you feel like your voice doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So you don't say anything, you don't speak up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you just, yeah. you don't know how to get involved. But the cool thing about public health is like, it builds your confidence on how to promote these, right? Like culturally appropriate um, yeah. movements and... Right. And I think on what you were saying too, like the, it's about those small gaps too like yes there are larger gaps there are huge systemic issues Mm -hmm. but if we're not filling those tiny gaps too um like you said at your workplace in your friend group in your family in your fam in your family which has been a big one for me this year (laughs) (laughs) that's been rough but um (laughs) but yeah like if you're not filling those small gaps and working to make those small changes that's not going to help shift the entire conversation or the entire issue. Right. And I think too, going back to um, what I know, which is like the community classroom, the district I'm in right now for my master's degree in Oregon is the most racially and socioeconomically diverse district in the state Mm. as far as students, Mm. but it's definitely not showing as teachers Mm. and the, um, district is actively working to bring in more diverse teaching Mm -hmm. staff make sure that us white teachers are also more educated Mm -hmm. um yeah on um we're doing anti-bias anti-racist like training right now like on top of all of our other teacher training Mm -hmm. and then like the program i'm in too you know we talk about like literacy for example Mm -hmm. and creating access to what we call mirrors and windows Mm. with literacy right Mm. and recognizing that our white students have mirrors constantly they get to see themselves everywhere so they actually need more windows in the classroom Mm. and then our students of color need more mirrors so you overcompensate with mirrors for your students who don't get them in the everyday world and like filling those little gaps in ways like that like how can we support and bring attention to students who are marginalized yeah absolutely without without also pointing a finger and othering yeah like you just make it part of yeah you just make it part of the classroom culture right Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah no that's great absolutely and um like you mentioned everyone if we need everyone involved in the fight everyone has different capacities Mm -hmm. knowledge experience comfort levels uh at various kind of using various tools to join the fight um, you know, people like us who are had the privilege of being educated, um, we can be the ones writing, raising awareness through podcasting, blogs and whatever have you. And, you know, one thing we did recently is we we teamed up with um, another public health agency to um, write a report 
and it's titled um, uh-huh. The Urgent Need for a Systems Thinking Approach to Address um, Anti-Black Racism in Ontario, which is a province in which we live. And in this report, mm-hmm. you know, very simple, we, um, we outline the disparities in the education system, socioeconomic system, um, healthcare system, and the justice system, and just to raise awareness of all these different issues. And that's something, if you asked me two years ago, I didn't know we would, I would know where to start, um, what that would look like. Um, was I expecting more, like having done the paper, did I expect the world to just automatically change? Um, but it's no, it's just making, it's very inconvenient to get involved with other stuff that you that's not a part of your daily routine. And, you know, be comfortable taking some, t- sacrificing some of your time to address some of those issues that you're passionate about, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, to kind of, as a transition into some of the more specific things we want to talk mm-hmm. about with you too. I mean, obviously we want to talk or speak to, and we do a lot, especially in public health and also in education. We already kind of spoke to it, but like building equity for vulnerable communities and like, what does that look like for you or in what you do or even specific to like access and vaccines and things like that? Ooh, that's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> a loaded yeah. <laughs> question. Yeah. That's a loaded question. Um, I think to answer that question, I'll probably start at the, I guess they call it the 30,000 foot view. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say at least in Canada where I'm based, um, we don't even systematically collect um, race or ethnic based data to even know a problem exists. Right. Oh, wow. And wait, why? uh, We just I, I don't know. I, I really if that but if that's information that's being collected around the world right. in almost every other country almost right <laughs> why isn't that something that Canada is doing because I mean you guys are an affluent country right, right. so you know that's a, a this is a good discussion now so we actually yeah we did an episode on this and I actually went into it with a very different view than I have today so okay, I was okay. I, I was opposed to um, collecting race and ethnic based data, primarily based on the fact that there are some underlying trust issues with who has control of that yes. data. Um, the case study for this is um, when you start building AI systems for to enhance criminal justice. And I know that there's a lot of situations in the States and it it's very harmful to um, um, black populations because these data sets um, oftentimes are built based on bias and you feed bias into an AI, you get bias out and that sort of thing. So that was, that was one of my angles. Also, another one of my angles was if we have such granular data about even postal codes and communities, mm-hmm. me as a business can make decisions based on that. And that's, that actually has already happened, right? So some communities um, don't have a lot of grocery stores in it. You have a lot of food swamps, so you have the junk food, cheaper food. And those decisions are actually made by those corporations because they do know the demographics of those areas and they can kind of target it, um, yeah. their enterprises to that. Because um, I know if I have a certain fast food restaurant in this community and have $1 burgers, um, they're going to buy the $1 burgers uh, be- instead of the $3 lettuce that you can't really do anything much with. Um, right. So I think... That was my perspective on it before, but I think that is now I've come around to realizing that that's not a valid enough reason to to not collect race and ba- race and ethnic based data. Um, 
you know, as this morning I, I saw a quote where it where it said a a, a problem um, well defined. Uh, this is a quote by John Dewey. A problem well defined is a problem half solved. So, if mm-hmm. if you don't have the data to define a problem, then you can't even begin to formulate a solution. Yep. So, in this case, um, in terms of the data, you just have to have mechanisms in place to hold the people collecting the data accountable, have more transparency. Um, there w- would have to be some intent to uh, as how that data would be used. Who does the data belong to? Um, have mechanisms in place to see if collecting the data itself is disproportionately harming any groups. So I think it's a little bit complicated um, because, and then the other part of the argument I made as well is countries that do collect race and ethnic based data um, are they any better off than those countries like Canada that that don't? So it just goes to show that's not the only thing and the only factor at play. But I do say in terms of the tools in our arsenal, that's one of the first steps that we have to deliberately use to advance towards equity. I don't know right, if that was right. a long-winded answer. but No, that was great. And do you, do you feel like your perspectives can all exist in the same space? Like from what yeah. you said, I feel like all of the things you said are true yes and still yes (laughs) you know like and and i think that's where we get we expect things to be able to be divided right and and there very infrequently are right um those complicated layered things can exist in the same space that's it and we can we can we can appreciate and need one part of this thing or issue we're looking at like collecting data while still acknowledging the harm it is doing absolutely um, and that's where we and that's where we actually have opportunities to make change and move forward yes yeah that that's a i think that's a great point to make i think you can be comfortable having conflicting perspectives in like your own like your own mind you don't have to be fully one way or fully the other way you have to realize that there are nuances there um and this enables you to have conversations so if my mind was fully made up i don't want to hear anybody so if i wanted to collect race and ethnic based data i wouldn't want to hear about like the other perspective of i'm absolutely opposed to it and then we can't have a middle ground middle ground doesn't mean we're we're going to compromise and have a solution right in the middle middle ground means there are some things we can agree on, at least, which is a foundation for us to have a meaningful conversation, right? So yes. I can then, same, and that's why I um, will get into this a bit later, vaccine hesitancy is something that I kind of just stumbled my way into because I like having conversations with people who completely disagree or completely mm-hmm. have an unfounded belief on something. I can have those conversations, right. pick out those reasons. Oh, so this person thinks the vaccines were developed in a mouse or something and i could literally just squash it there but if i if you just say i don't believe in vaccines and i'm done with you i can't even talk to you long enough to right. find out what is it information i can get you that would be helpful to you right so i think right. what you're saying is absolutely correct that um you ha- there's evidence to suggest that if you collect information and do something good with it good can come from it but you have to a- acknowledge that as humans there's you're playing factors like greed, capitalism, all those things, and then things can get used a different way. So I think not to belittle someone who doesn't believe in collecting it, but just explain to them like I understand. However, um, given the different risks involved, um, 
we should still move forward, but we should also be very vigilant about making sure it's not used inappropriately and stuff like that. So I think having that open mind um, allows you to have those important conversations for sure. I think having the danger with not having a growth mindset is that you become complacent and that contributes to so many issues in society like stigma and yeah why are you looking at me like that oh because you and i talk about growth mindset so much (laughs) (laughs) and like we've specifically talked about it like there's even gaps in education where like that wasn't a thing that was openly taught to people and now like educators are learning how to teach growth mindset Mm. and so i it's just like those of us who are adults who weren't inherently taught that as children how to have a growth mindset with the littlest things Mm. you're doing Mm. like Mm -hmm. learning to read and write and math and like all those things as like an elementary kid like you have to relearn that then as an adult Mm -hmm. and I feel like I know many people um especially within the last two years are having to relearn and readjust not pointing (laughs) at you because I think that's you just (laughs) but like we talk about it a lot but um relearn and readjust and how to have growth mindset and I think there are a lot of people like who think they're Mm open-minded and they're really just stuck because their their ideas might be progressive or whatever but they're not yeah Mm -hmm. they're not willing to meet that middle ground like you mentioned right Mm -hmm. um to have those hard discussions because and if you're unwilling Mm -hmm. yep Mm -hmm. and if you're unwilling then you actually have a closed mind and you do not have growth mindset. Right. Yeah. And to that point, um, I'm not sure if you've, you've, um, you've heard about um, deliberative democracies. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. So um, <laughs> what it is, and sorry to go off topic. You can always rein me back in. Keep going. going. No, keep going. Off. So yeah, deliberative democracies, something I learned about fairly recently. And we had a conversation with um, Julie Anderson, who's like the, the CEO of um, the Canadian partnership um, for, women's and children's health I maybe got mm-hmm. that acronym. hopefully i got the acronym right so basically um what it is is um there's a lot of division everywhere in every country um there's a left and a right there's no discussions and um this goes all the way up to the decision making table where they don't even talk at that level there's like a senate and house and all these different things that are elected to actually have conversations and they themselves don't even want to have conversations so it's just um, basically, this is founded on the fact that the, the um, democracies, as the way that they were built, um, they're not functioning the way that they were intended, right? So um, there's a concept called the deliberative democracy, where it's more of a bottom-up approach to problem-solving, policy, decision-making, where people from the community of different ideologies actually come together and deliberate on mm-hmm. various topics. And I think one of the the, um, the most prominent con- case study of that was in Ireland with the um, pro-choice, um, you know, anti-abortion um, type of divide where they actually, yeah. and I think, you know, Ireland with the Protestants, Catholics, there's a lot of division yeah. there. So they actually um, had this, these tests, deliberative democracies, where they'd bring like 200 people from one political idea, um, ideology and 200 from another. They'd basically sandwich them in like, a, it's conferencing for like, it's like you go to a conference and they have like three policy areas that they have to discuss. And they, they're there for like a whole weekend. And what they found was they did pre and post polling and they found that everybody's views kind of converged. And then this kind of was oh, wow. sustainable over long term. And 
And like I said, the idea is not that we want consensus building and everything because there's some things you can't consensus is not good in all situations. Um, but mm-hmm. but the takeaway from that is it is possible when things are framed in a right, right way um, that people can come together and have the discussion. So something like climate change scares a lot of people. Um, but maybe it's like, do you agree that the ocean is dirty? You know, um, yeah, there's a lot of junk there. Um, so let's forget about calling it climate change. Do you agree that we need to clean up this dirty part of the water? Cool. Let's do it. So that's what it focuses on. Let's focus on commonalities. Let's focus on yep. framing problems in a way that we can agree with and then kind of go ahead with that. So that's one thing I wanted to bring up with deliberative democracies is that it allows it kind of repair it. It 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 unites people around like a common issue rather than I see this issue this way and you see this way and I don't want to talk to you. Um, so I think that was something that was very um, impactful and right. Yeah. I like how you brought up that it's also not about uh, making sure that there's a consensus, right. right? Because we, if we had that as a concern, mm. then we might also be trying to enforce like a monoculture right and then if everybody you don't without those differing opinions or ideas or understandings Mm. even um then when there is an issue how can you look at all the parts to Mm. actually confront it and go on if everybody is only on one side and so i like that you brought up that there is actually importance absolutely in um having a variety of understandings and perspectives This episode is sponsored by Lovely, an alternative to couples therapy. Lovely believes that modern love deserves a modern solution, that we get to rewrite the rules when it comes to how we live, how we love, and what matters in our lives. Founder of Lovely, Alex McMillan, has designed beautiful and meaningful activity boxes that come with all the supplies and instructions to help couples give their relationships the attention it deserves. Lovely is totally unique, a mix of therapy, behavior change, and flirty play that makes connection and growth easy. Activities range from understanding your partner's core values to writing love letters to changing up your intimacy playbook. Interested in Lovely? Visit thelovely.us. Currently available only in the U.S. Use promo code Let's Make Lovely for 10% off. That's Let's Make Lovely in all caps. Cheers! We saw on Twitter mm. a few months ago, and we tried looking it up and finding the thread, mm. but we can't find it. But we were talking about vaccine hesitancy mm. in America. Mm. And it said, like, yes, we can claim that vaccine hesitancy is due to... Um, like, like, a, a, like a singular issue is basically what some people were saying. Mm-hmm. Right. Was like, like a singular. Like mistrust in mm-hmm. the government and the vaccination. When in reality, we're just failing the same communities over and over again. And in the U.S., you can, you can like actually overlay a map and it will show you there are food deserts, Wi-Fi deserts, um, pharmacy deserts, um, just all these issues in the same communities across the U.S. So there's so many barriers in terms of access to healthcare, um, access to equity, just so many health disparities. And we aren't working towards 
like figuring out a right solution towards building up those communities and helping them to receive the care they need, like the COVID-19 vaccination. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're not even acknowledging that these issues are overlapping, Mm -hmm. right? Like as a society, we're not acknowledging it. Obviously there are people who do see that. Um, And then I also, in a lot of our research for today too, like I saw a lot of even scholarly articles that spoke more generally to vaccine hesitancy or like brought it back strictly to like the Mm anti-vax movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, that's not the only thing, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we just are excited to speak to you about this because we feel like you have a pool of knowledge that we're not finding even our own research. And also because, you know, we're two white girls yes. and it's going to come <laughs> off really weird if we are like the main voice of this issue that communities are facing because we can't speak to it completely you know and we want to listen we want to take this time to listen more than and and with this be the expert and with this specific issue too we have we had all the access you work in a medical facility and Mm -hmm. I'm an educator we were early on the list Mm -hmm. like um so even in the specifics of receiving Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. COVID-19 vaccine like we and that's had not, all the access. We did. And that's not to, like, brag about it. It's not at all. No. It comes off that way. But it's just, we still are advocating for these communities. But it also, yeah. we are very aware of how it might look when we're. If we were the only people If we're the only people this. talking about this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, all, all the time. <laughs> Oh man. We we live together and have no other plans. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, vaccine hesitancy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess the the best place to start with this one is like what is what is vaccine hesitancy, right? So I'm just going to read the, the nothing fancy the World Health Organization's definition of vaccine hesitancy and then we go from there. So Okay. Uh they define vaccine hesitancy as the delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite the availability of vaccine services. Okay? So I'll work backwards. So you touched on some great points there. So despite the availability of vaccine services. So mm-hmm. a lot of times when it's just like, okay, these people are not getting the vaccine, it's not accessible for them. Um, availability, despite the availability of vaccines. So the concept of vaccine hesitancy applies if everyone can can basically conveniently get the vaccine, right? So right off the bat, mm-hmm. if they, if you're wondering why a community is not vaccinated and you're like, okay, there's one mobile clinic and like yeah. 50 kilometers away and people in that community tend not to have a vehicle or whatever transportation, can't take time off work, you're, you're automatically using the wrong term. So it's not even Mm -hmm. vaccine hesitancy or anti-vax at that point. So to unpack it even more, um, vaccine hesitancy is really a spectrum, right? There's the complete acceptance, sign me up, I don't care, give me, I'm fully believing of it, I have no concerns, Dr. Fauci says it's fine, I'm going to get it, right? Then you have the complete Mm -hmm. refusers who I don't care if it cured the COVID itself and if it could cure everybody of COVID if I take, I'm not taking it under any circumstances, that's what you would call complete refusers, 
right? And then there's in yep. between. There's people who refuse but are unsure. But if it's made mandated to travel, maybe I'll get it, right? There's the people who are, um, they'll get it. They don't. They really think something's gonna bad's gonna happen if they get it, but they'll kind of get it anyway, right? And then you have people just that are on the fence. Like depending on the day you talk to them, they might be yes or no. So I think we kind of oversimplify, like what you said. A lot of things what you're saying is just like oversimplifying the reasons for vaccine hesitancy and also oversimplifying all vaccine hesitant people are in the same group right yeah that, that's that's a big thing so you have the the ant people are more familiar with the anti-vaxxers which are just yes. um not only do they refuse or not believe in vaccines and all and refuse it they're gonna go around and try to impose their views on others as well that's what you yeah. would re- yep. that's what you would categorize as anti-vax where I refuse have, exactly. We have the highest percentage of anti-vaxxers in the U.S. Wow. in Oregon, the highest. So public health here mm. really focuses on vaccinations. Wow! And it's amazing to me. It's just incredible work. Yeah, but it's terrifying. Yeah, and it's not. And that and that community here too is not. It's they've even delved into other things here, like we had on a ballot this was quite a few years ago like the addition of fluoride in the water which like a lot of communities do and and it got voted down Mm -hmm. and there were huge billboards and everything from like anti-vax communities like making lots of claims (laughs) and all these things yeah Yeah. oregon Um, oregon is a very fascinating um, oh yeah there's documentaries i've seen uh, yeah what's that one called (laughs) The little ranch thing that was there. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. I can't remember. Um, Are we talking about the cult? Yeah, the, the cult. Which, Rajnishi, yeah. Rajnishi. Rajnishi. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Funny, yep. funny story. I actually learned that my uncle audited their taxes. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Extreme sidebar. Oh, wow! This is great. This is great. Wow. Wow. So was was he involved? I mean, we can cut this part, but was he involved in in, take, in taking him down? No. No, he wasn't involved in taking them down, uh, but um he worked directly with who was that woman that worked with the leader? Uh Sa- like Sonia or Sa- 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 Sadia yes. Sa- yeah. Sa- I can't remember what it, but yeah. I was fascinated. Yeah, he worked but... with her for like doing their taxes. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a small world. Isn't that weird? I know. Yeah. Oh wow. But yeah, I mean, it just yeah, I, I I do. I'm aware that there's some kind of a lot of nuances in in Portland yeah. around certain issues, and um, yes. the problem the problem with a lot of things now is people are realizing how powerful like disinformation and misinformation is. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Orange, who just left office, um, yep. he, <laughs> he kind of let the cat out of the bag with weaponizing i mean it was done mm-hmm. the, I, I call it the dark arts the dark arts were kind of used back mm-hmm. in the time of hitler and whatever and people kind of got a little bit more covert civilized and kind of smile on the surface but do bad things behind the scenes now people are just like whatever i don't care what the optics like look like so now you see right. a lot of that kind of just for the sake of challenging a concept you don't understand like the fluoride thing like Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem natural, so why do we? Why are we putting it in there? Um, the only reason you probably want to put it in there is because you want to control us or something. So then, right. that kind mm-hmm. of 
there's a there's a group for that, right? There are groups that are more prone to kind of receiving that message, and it kind of specifically targets um, those groups. Um, but it's unfortunate that um, that's the case, and you also see it in, in um, with the vaccines as well. So these groups with the agenda, like I said, anti-vaxxers specifically refuse vaccines, and they also don't want anyone else to get the vaccine, right? So yeah, a lot right. of a lot of what you see with disinformation. Um, challenging you know certain religious groups you might hear something about vaccines not being halal or you know and then you know those things come from somewhere right um i'm -hmm. sure there are vaccines that you know might not be halal but there are some that that are um Mm -hmm. but even just dressing up the message to kind of scare certain groups of people and that's where the agenda comes in but for 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 black people specifically or maybe even other people of color Vaccine hesitancy is a very complicated issue, and the issue itself mm-hmm. is the issue is not necessarily even related to vaccines itself. It's related to just healthcare distrust for government establishments because um, the trust was just eroded over time. Um, so mm-hmm. people often miss, and I can go if you want me to go into the historical part now. I can. Um, or if we can, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's important mm-hmm. yeah. to mention, um, especially since I feel like a lot of the or some of the historical aspects are getting brought up in various articles and things, but I don't know that they're being properly linked mm. to present day, right. and so right. I do think that's important to speak to, right, mm-hmm. right, exactly. And for that reason, we won't take too much time because that's only a small portion of the pie. Everyone always talks about sites of Tuskegee, syphilis study. Don't yep, don't right. have to go into it too much. Um, denial, you know, 400 to 600 men denied access to treatment. We basically intended the experiment, intentionally experimented on them to see what the un- um, untreated effects of syphilis were, even though antibiotics were available and they could have been given antibiotics. We know mm-hmm. standard in research is if, if there is like an experiment, because research is done to identify if something works and doesn't mm-hmm. harm or to identify the harm it could cause and how much it works, right? So if throughout the course of a research study, you find that the actual intervention you're testing is significantly effective, then you kind of have to break protocol and then see to it that people who have whatever disease that you're treating can get access to it. But these men mm-hmm. didn't get it for 40 years. So anyway, wow. that's 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 one thing. Um, there's also... You know, um, James Marion Sims, father of gynecology. Um, a lot of the knowledge we have now in, in, in the field of gynecology came from unethical treatment of ens- enslaved women, yes. um, yep. experimenting on them without anest- anest- anesthetics, and just some horrible dehumanizing things that were done. Um, does it mean that we throw away all the knowledge we have from that? No. Um, it does mean that we have to recognize um, the racist um, ideologies that went into giving us this knowledge and then you know whether we want to talk about reconciliation reparations that sort of things but we have to acknowledge that um, the, we are in this position because of those unethical treatments of those enslaved women um, so yeah th- we could go on and on there's the eugenics um, which is another horrible thing for sterilization of, of, of um, women and you know, disproportionately affected African-American women across many different mm-hmm. states and you know, you could go on and on. So so what it is, is all these things are just one thing. So um, th- these are well-noted, well-documented things, but there are other things that I'm sure that are not as well-documented, including um, present-day um, racism. So 
my experiences in the healthcare system are not going to be documented for anyone to write about it unless I'm a part of a research study. Um, But so what you said there is that there is a lack of uh, proper linkage to past and present. And I completely agree with you. It kind of like, oh, it's if Tuskegee didn't happen, you know, Tuskegee didn't happen, we'd be okay. Now it's just like, no, Tuskegee is one of unfortunately hundreds or thousands of examples of why people don't trust Mm -hmm. you it's one example of why they don't trust you and there are too few reasons to trust you um exactly yeah and i think there's like you said it's it's one piece of the pie right it's not we like to try to problem solve with a singular Mm, issue exactly and exactly and when you have uh when you have communities of many people, countries of many people, the world, you know, like when you further expand it, there are so many connections to be made and so many underlying and overlapping factors Mm -hmm. to health inequity to to all of it. Like, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. And Mm -hmm. you know, it's really, it's a bit frustrating because I think, the horns were kind of being blown. I, I, I've even said um, before the vaccine, we had a year of, I mean, the vaccines coming as early as it did was kind of a blessing. Um, but you had that whole year from March or whatever to whenever you anticipated the vaccines would be ready to kind of assess the situation and start putting in the work to kind of earn, you know, as healthcare, public health, to re-earn that trust. Uh, from the community instead of you didn't do anything and then it's out just like take it or leave it basically and i think that was very discouraging like this framework for vaccine hesitancy is not new you know vaccine preventable diseases are a thing from like like so like come on like we knew we have a very good framework to understand people's intention to get vaccinated right so for vaccine hesitancy there's that 3c model of vaccine hesitancy Mm -hmm talks about complacency, confidence, and convenience, right? And specifically, the second C, confidence, it's literally, this is what the definition says. Confidence is related to trust in the effectiveness and safety of vaccines, the systems that deliver them, and the motivations of policymakers who decide on the needed vaccines. So there's red flags going everywhere. They don't know if it's safe because you developed in a year. There was no transparency, um, no plain language about why it's thing. It's just mRNA is a new technology. Get over it. Um, okay, that's mistake one. The systems that deliver it, right? So bring yep. bring in the community earlier. Um, have them be a part of maybe even vaccine development. Um, what 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 are what are some issue, What are some concerns communities might have about vaccines, and then work on transparency from there. Um, not just when the vaccine's ready to go, right? Yeah. Um, and then the policymakers who decide on needed vaccines. So we've kind of struck out on all these different factors, and it is no surprise that we saw what we did. Um, the vaccine, and this is the thing as well, the vaccine hesitancy rates are kind of lowering. They kind of poll them every couple months. And it's not that they're lowering. It's just that the situation is very scary. Mm-hmm. So it's it's... It's a life or death situation and people are getting, they're in that middle 
vaccine hesitancy and they're just going to get it out of survival, but they kind of see it as a gamble. So they're not fully even bought into it when they're getting the vaccine. So there's a false sense of security like, well, the vaccine hesitancy rate's getting better because the, the bars are going up in the black community and like they're fine with it now. It's like, no, they actually are scared to death because they're living in cramped housing, neighborhoods are poor, access to healthcare, education, all those different social terms that we talk about. And getting a vaccine in those situations is literally the only way for them to kind of have some safety in their environment. So Right. It's a calculated risk. Calculated right? risk. Like which which factors outweigh others. Yes. Like And get and yeah. getting a vaccine should not be a calculated calculated risk. So it's kind of a it was a little loophole that kind of there's a false sense of security there now in public health and healthcare because more people are getting it. But I think the reluctance is still there. If we do measure like um, I'm, I got the vaccine, but I feel like I could die anytime from the vaccine. That would probably be higher than you'd want. So it just goes to show um, even though there's a false sense of security that trust is being repaired because people are getting the vaccine when I, that's really not the case. There's a lot of right. confounding variables for that. Right. And there's like with everything, too, there's like macro issues and micro, Absolutely. too, right? Like I know people who have um, severe health issues and medical like allergies and stuff. And that's where their hesitancy comes from. It's not from a social Absolutely. Um, issue. It's like very personal. Right. And so I think like that's where just like we've been saying this whole time it gets hard to try to pinpoint a singular reason right and we shouldn't be trying to do that either right right and then you know talk oh sorry go no just to, to follow up on your point as well like um it's very and i don't have the and i i, I don't like to criticize when i myself don't have the answers um so this is not like criticism it's just an observation like we're we have a lot of language talk to your healthcare provider what if mm-hmm. that what if that uh, person was racist to me um yes yeah you know, what if we talk about this yeah so you much. know like yeah. so uh, even just that language of what it, what what is a trusted healthcare provider is it just someone who's li- right. licensed by college to practice medicine or is right. there like how do we measure that so my experiences saying it like that neglects my experiences with the healthcare system and yep you're asking me to trust something that hasn't kind of looked out for me um, and it disproportionately harms me. So it's this narrative of, of even that itself is harmful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something I think we want to do a whole episode on mm-hmm. of the do, various yeah. ways that um, medical professionals fail a variety of communities, hmm. whether it's um, due to, their ideas of weight and health right. mm-hmm. or the queer community mm-hmm. or race and health, like all of these things. And the almost, for some reason, inherent inability to like be anti-biased yeah. as yeah. like a medical professional. Like, I don't, I don't understand it. Like I've had friends face right. bias from medical professionals because they're gay. Right. Like, I've faced bias because I am bigger and curvier and like, oh, but have you thought about your weight with this problem? And it's like that my weight isn't the issue here. I am a health like normally a healthy human, like and you're not listening to me. And then 
even getting into gender Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. like um black and indigenous women face different Mm -hmm. biases with from health professionals too but that again like i just said could be a whole yeah. nother yeah. <laughs> episode There's, and discussion yeah i think one easy resource for this is um one of our favorite instagram pages is called um at so you want to talk about mm. Do, i don't know if you follow them or not no no but they're incredible mm. and they um did a post that was like so you want to talk about medical racism hmm. and it had all these really impressive facts and it's just it's the reality of the situation it's a very hard conversation to have because you don't want to acknowledge that this trusted um system can participate in the ways that we alienate the people we're trying to help yeah and let's i guess let's i mean we'll have a you i'm sure you have plans for a different (laughs) episode but let's talk about that for a bit so Yeah. yeah so i know mel you'd mentioned okay collect race and ethnic based data I kind of gave you the pros and cons either way. This is a case where it's very important to collect. So the reason implicit bias is implicit is because you're not aware of it. So I need to confront you with the facts so that you can, you realize that you're not intending to do harm, but you are. So primary example of that is um, when we talk about even pain management um, for, for for the healthcare system, right? Like, yeah. Um, I've experienced this myself. My wife has experienced this, and we kind of go, hmm, "That's a bit strange." Um, we, we're yeah. we're told by, um, you know, parents, uncles, aunts that you have to be kicking and screaming to get the same, you know, and that's kind of sad to to hear. But like when it's backed up with facts, like there's a, I know there's a, um, a very, uh, big paper that came out. I think I can't remember if it was twenty. It's a meta analysis that was done in twenty twelve. Um, from uh, Megani and basically what they found was uh, black patients were 22% less likely than white patients to receive any pain medication and then 29% less likely to receive an opioid prescription so Mm -hmm. um, that gets into a lot of implicit bias with um, pain tolerance Um, maybe I don't believe you especially with the opioid piece not that you want prescribers to be giving out opioids but if they think Mm -hmm if the reason they're prescribing opioids is because they think it's effective and then they're holding back on it uh, for people of color because they think you're going to abuse it or you're faking your pain or something, that in of itself is a different discussion, but that needs to be talked about. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, You know, when you then, if you get patient experiences themselves, um, it's, it's astronomical, the differences you see. I know there's one study, um, that showed that there was 43% of black people perceived that they were discriminated in a hospital setting compared to 3% of whites. That's a 40% difference. So that's like overwhelmingly people just experience healthcare differently and mm-hmm. go to talk to your doctor who you're supposed to trust. It's like your, your underlying assus, uh, assumption is that people, all people trust their healthcare providers. And which, right. I think there has to be more accountability. Absolutely. And I think, public health is working towards figuring out how to create that accountability. And I know there are a lot of healthcare providers that are also included in trying to figure out how to improve the system too. So mm-hmm. not to um, kind of push them out, yeah. but I know that there are some that care. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, sorry. I was going to say it goes back to what you said earlier about including everyone at the table in there the conversation. Go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, Co -create. you can't. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can't if you. It's like if you put one group of professionals in a room to solve an issue without including like members of the community patients um mm -hmm. other experts who maybe do sit outside of that career so like for example like in in specifically to what we're talking about we do need medical professionals we do need members of the communities that are actually affected by the issue and then public health officials too like all of these things need to they need to intersect which we joke that's like the like the word of the podcast mm. I, think yeah. I use it in every episode yeah. <laughs> but, um, but like all of these things do need to be intersectional and they do need to cross paths and for those discussions to happen to you have to have that variety of perspectives absolutely like and it's just it's but it's also at a point um now it's like do you know and this might be a bad example we can we can cut it in <laughs> In like a criminal case in court, mm. um, if they have enough charges to charge someone, they might not even charge them with all the evidence that they have, if that makes sense. So I think it's like, yeah. how much more do we need to collect or know to know that there's something that needs to be fixed? Like, for example, the the you know, child and maternal health, completely horrible. Like black, like the the, the disparities in terms of race for for in terms of even just. Um, you know, women, because we're talking about child and maternal health, like black women more likely experience preterm birth, more likely to be given mm -hmm. C-section, three to four times more likely to die while in pregnancy than, than white women. Um, and then a lot of this, sometimes they control for education and they're still finding the same thing. So um, it just goes to show that there are disparities in the healthcare system as well, right? So. Yes. Absolutely. There's a documentary I watched in school that was all about, um, it was a comparison of white pregnant moms mm. and then black pregnant moms and then it was following them through their pregnancy and then the health of their baby once they were born and it's like the white women that they chose to study were not even middle class white women mm. and the black women they chose to study were upper class mm. they were high power lawyers they had a, opportunities and money and resources but their child once they were born were preterm still had all these health conditions and it's just because of the daily discrimination mm. and racism that they faced like throughout their pregnancy and there are actual degrees that focus on studying this like so social epidemiology mm. um where yeah. you look at the impact of discrimination on your actual physical health. Mm. Great point. And I think, too, we forget how, and again, that's like part of why we started this podcast, yeah. how everything you are faced with and then partake in affects your being, mm. affects your body, affects your mental health. Um, and whether it's enforced on you by a societal yeah. thing or something you like willingly do, like if we were to talk about like choosing to smoke cigarettes or something mm -hmm. um, or drinking or whatever, like those, all of those factors affect right. 
your health. You were for a while. She ended up being unable to be on the podcast with us. The girl we interviewed? Yeah, where we just kind of, we had like a pre-interview with her. Mm. Was it Key West? Yes. She mm. was, I don't know if it was part of her master's program. I can't remember exactly. But she spoke to us a lot about... um access to hospitals down there and mm. how they're specifically for um there's v- very few rooms delivery rooms mm. at the yeah. hospitals there because of where it's located um, i think she said there were like it's... one or two rooms yeah and so for this huge population wow. yep so you either have to be able to fly in hmm. um like a doula or mm-hmm. a midwife midwife to help you give birth to your child or you have to be able to fly to a different hospital um yeah like i think she said in miami was the most was would be Mm -hmm. the closest or um Hmm. yeah and that was fascinating too of how like access from where you live Mm. and the privileges you have Mm. yeah um and how those intersect too and how that affects yeah being able to safely give birth there incredible issues yeah yeah Yeah. and even like there's some communities that don't want to give birth in hospital settings as well so it's how do you reallocate resources to support them in that decision um as well so yeah it's super super complicated you've already brought up the world health organization and i was reading an article that um linked to their website Mm -hmm. and they lifted they listed vaccine hesitancy as a top 10 global health threat in 2019 Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that helps us come full circle uh but i did write it down Mm -hmm. in my notes as something that i thought was interesting to to bring up um because (laughs) do you hear our cat yeah oh that's a cat (laughs) i wasn't sure what that was (laughs) um he's he's been an interesting addition to the household and trying to record and edit you know Um, we know might as well get that beautiful voice on the podcast right he's he's only eight months old Mm. so he needs lots of attention Um, i look forward to the new uh podcast (laughs) intro with the meows in the background just (laughs) just with one of the things i also wanted to mention as well is it's kind of a dual problem. Like we can go with COVID-19 in general and work our way back to other vaccines. So it's a problem when the communities that are disproportionately more likely to get infected by COVID-19, hospitalized, die from COVID-19, when they are less likely themselves to want to get vaccinated for whatever reason, which we've discussed that it's not a simple reason. So that is a challenge in of itself that has to be worked on uh, for other vaccine preventable diseases and the pandemic that will occur at some point again in the future. So if we wait again to start addressing these issues, we're going to be talking about the same thing, um, just that you, the three of us here will be 30 years older, 50 years old, <laughs> whatever it is, and we'll, talk, we'll be talking about the same thing. Um, so yeah, so I would just say it is a global threat because... Um, we know, um, in terms of human history, things like clean water, antibiotics, vaccines were some of the most instrumental things in, um, extending life expectancy. You know, I think in the 
30s to the 50s you people would live till they're 40 or whatever now people are living it's like double what it was at that point um people are just not people are not dying from infectious diseases as much anymore Mm -hmm. covid19 has completely screwed that all up unfortunately Mm -hmm. um but the burden is shifting more to chronic diseases um so we don't want to be facing a double burden of um, addressing chronic diseases and infectious diseases at the same time um, which is why i would say it is a huge threat to only to have both of those issues um, happening simultaneously with the caveat that it is happening simultaneously in some of those developing countries already um, so we can't have that going on in every region in the world at the same time that's very right. resource intensive and I guess going off of that, Mm. now I remember where I wanted to go. (laughs) Um, Can we speak to some, and I think we might have already mentioned a few of them earlier on, but some of the things besides um, the distrust or like, you know, like we we mentioned access earlier and we've, we talked about like food swamps and deserts Mm -hmm. and, and speaking to, I know you mentioned also do can they take time off work mm. can they do they have a safe way to transport themselves right. to to where the vaccine is available do they have child care right. um yeah. and especially like considering things during the pandemic is it safe for them to get on a crowded public bus are they mm. in a state that is actually supportive Mm. of wearing masks and distancing like i'm from the midwest and i have a lot of family who's seeing the majority unsafe practices where they live i think these are considerations that get forgotten in a lot of the larger scale issues um but they have equal importance because if like you said when you when you said the definition of vaccine hesitancy it says when it's available right absolutely and there are many barriers Mm -hmm. even though a pharmacy a clinic whatever has them Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean the availability is a Mm two-way street you're available to giving it but are do the people who are the people who need it available and able Mm -hmm. to meet you there available and accessible yes So why don't you drive 30 minutes? I can't. So it's a, it's available, but it's not accessible. People often yes. kind of yeah. uh, mix those two terms together. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of different factors um, that uh, play a role, that serve as a barrier for people who actually, um, there are people that don't want to get the vaccine. That's, um, it's not yes. fine, but that's a reality. There are people who want to, and there are barriers for those people who want to to get it so at the very least public health can play a role because you can't really force anyone uh, if their minds are made up um it's a free society you make your own choice inform as long as people have the inform that's another issue um Mm -hmm. information about the vaccine is that accessible so then there are you could even say there are disparities in information as well like maybe the well-informed people are the ones getting the vaccine and the poorly informed one, which happens to be a certain community have less uptake. So those are some of the barriers to consider Um, talking about MRNA vaccine and viral vectors and um, spike proteins. And like, I mean, that's cool for me because I, my background's immunology. 
I don't think uh, someone who wants to just go about their day um, in construction or whatever really cares about science that much. Um, mm-hmm. The information should be made available if they want to be educated and informed in that all those different scientific elements of it. But just the basic kind of um, science literacy, health literacy, um, making sure that the information is presented in a way people can understand it. Um, we're and approachable. And approachable. Yep. Um, I think a lot of times to people with the knowledge kind of look at it as I think people like using the word ivory tower. I don't really like ivory tower, but it's like, I'm like the gatekeeper of the knowledge and you have to come through to me and there's this big information asymmetry and you're stupid for not, why can't you just understand that mRNA vaccines were developed uh, during SARS and you just need to get over it. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, I think you just said that to, um, Mel, the approachability of even the people mm-hmm. yeah. sharing the information. So I just think yeah. information is a barrier, 100%. There's still people talking about, I don't know if the vaccines are safe. There's still people talking about um, tra- lack of transparency. Um, I think it is getting a little better. I think it is, but then it gets into the issue with risk communication and risk perception. Now, um, f- there are six clots with the AstraZeneca vaccine um what does that mean so mm-hmm. contextualize i've seen a lot of more contextualizing okay in a regular population it's more than that if you're on birth control it's more than that so the vaccine is no more likely than the other things that you're probably having your routine in life to cause a clot that's something that's probably a better way to 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 communicate that than to say six in a million and five in a million trillion this and that and just like i don't know what that means um so we need to do a better job of that. But I would say there's information barriers that play a role as yeah. well. Yeah, And I think like like what you just did, right, you contextualized it in a way that, that makes it digestible. Right. And like when you were mentioning like the history of what is it, the MR, like I have no idea. Right, the mRNA, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm getting a master's degree, but I have no idea. Like, I don't have, and there's some, like, I have a want to understand that. Right. But it's it's where those things overlap of, like, the science is affecting, like, your personal being. Mm. And if you want to trust the science, you have to be able to contextualize mm. it in these things you already know. And I mean, in education, we call that scaffolding. Mm, You're mm. using people's prior knowledge mm. to explain something new mm. and need so scaffold. that they can build. Yes. So <laughs> that they can build upon that knowledge and have a deeper understanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think in public health as well, we just kind of the problem, too, is we try to just communicate it as is. And it's not like active knowledge translation per se. It's just like the incidence rate is X, Y, Z, and just like, it is facts, but the mm-hmm. who's the end user? What do you expect them to do with that information? Can they understand it? So I think there needs to be more of an active effort to kind of okay, not deceive people, but to right. help them to understand it in the way that you understand it, and then they can make their decision from there, and that's not being right. done enough. No, it's not, yeah. And that's kind of the purpose of our podcast, mm-hmm. too. We want everything to be approachable. Absolutely. And yeah. yeah, and and understood so that people can not necessarily like we want to like we to come a little full circle again. We want to invite everybody to the table, mm. 
mm-hmm. within these larger discussions mm-hmm. um, of public health um, issues and and have them have an understanding of how much it truly does affect their lives. Right. Like even if you're not mm-hmm. involved specifically in public health, like yeah. it has a huge impact on everything. Yeah. And what you're doing like with the podcast, right? Like it's a safe space to consume information. So maybe I'm nervous to go up to your public health person, uh, educated person. I don't really, Hey, do the vaccines really work? Hey, you stupid person. Everybody knows the vaccines work. And they're like, well, I'm never going to ask anyone that question again. Yeah. Now I can yeah. passively consume the content, have hear us talk it out and go, Oh right, yeah. I was wondering why. They did this, but now I understand. And, you know, just it's a long journey. And that's why, like, um, there's in healthcare and science and maybe even public health sometimes, there's there's not a lot of patience. It's like, get it now. Like, let's move on. It works. I know it works. This little paper within the little data graph thing shows me it works. Like, can you just get over it and, like, believe me? No. Mm -hmm. It takes time. It takes one conversation at a time. I've had family mm-hmm. members that I, that, you know, weeks, months of talking about the vaccine before they finally think, you know, just what is your concerns? I'm going to give you the, the what information would be helpful for you to make a decision, whether it's to or not to give them that information. Mm-hmm. And because I'm confident in do, like people often say, oh, but but if you give them too much information, maybe they won't take it. I actually found the opposite. Um you don't give them all at once. You give them what they request. So, hey, I am concerned mm-hmm. about how this affects pregnancy. Um, I've heard that it can cause birth defects or whatever. Cool. I will find you something that talks about that, and you can make up your mind if, if it's too high of a risk for you or if it's fine. Like, But that's how you kind of engage with those um, people. Um, what, are, what are your specific? Don't leave it at, oh, you know, Gordon's vaccine hesitant. Yeah, um, cool. Okay, you're ha- what? Are, what are those issues? I'm not stigmatizing. What are those issues that you have with the vaccine? Um, the speed at which it was developed. Okay, so and so has a great article. Um, maybe you know their article reader. Maybe they like videos. Maybe they like podcasts. So and so has a great thing on it. I think you would um, benefit from listening, watching, reading, whatever. Here you go. Um, let me know your thoughts either way. Cool. Done. It takes a lot of work, and we need more people right. doing that. Yeah. And I appreciate how you said too that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you give them all the information at once, right? If you bombard somebody with like, here's every fact and thing I know, and here's this scientific article, they might become standoffish. Yes. Whereas if you can get to the upstream problem, there's something I learned from public health <laughs> and like the specific root issue and yeah. answer those questions first. Yep. Then it does it does it also makes the information more digestible Absolutely. because like they might not need to know the statistics on the thing that's not affecting them. They don't want to know either. They yeah. don't yeah. they don't yeah, yeah they don't want to know. Yeah. They want to know like the smaller thing that's mm-hmm. like eating at their brain right. about why they're not wanting to do it. Right. And respond mm-hmm. to like and we can move on from this whenever you're ready, but respond to the actual question they're asking. So if you're asking me um does it affect pregnant women or women who are trying to get pregnant whatever whatever the case is don't go on a spiel about hey did you know vaccines were invented in 18 this and edward jenner did this and it, <laughs> it cured polio no they're asking because at the end of the day part of it is yes we take a vaccine to protect our community 
but we're also self-interested as well and concerned yeah. about our own health. Mm -hmm. So that's a question about their own health. So you don't need to go into how it's going to save everyone's lives yep. and all this stuff. What is your concern? And I'm going to address your specific concerns with the vaccine and give you the information. You can find all the information you want, but I can help screen. Maybe it's overwhelming for you. Here's a specific thing that I vetted for you that I'm confident yeah. that has the correct information. Do right. with it with you what you will. And I think that's Maybe. the best approach. Yeah, and I think, too, there's a lot of things that have become politicized. Hmm. Oh, and no. therefore, the information, <laughs> we don't have to go into this, but, like, that makes a Google search for somebody even more difficult, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Because they're not finding the information they're looking for. They're finding that a specific group or somebody yeah. of a specific ideology or a specific politician said X, Y, Z. And mm -hmm. that is unnecessary uh -huh. information oh, no. again it's polarizing yes and it's polarizing yeah and then search when you get your return search results it feeds back to you what you already believe right so it does yes yeah. that's not very helpful and that's why conversations no. Conver talk mm -hmm. to people who you disagree with um respect make sure you're all respectful respect human dignity at all times but talk to talk. i like talking to people i've had tough conversations about um homophobia with people mm -hmm. and like it's not the burden shouldn't be on those populations to do that work necessarily but if you have the capacity right. to talk to one or two people whatever you however maybe you can talk to a person a day maybe it's one in your entire lifetime um mm -hmm. have those tough conversations uh, as, as long as they're respectful right um and i found that it works it it's a lot of effort but it works like i've had tough mm -hmm. conversations about race um why yeah. Yeah. is this inappropriate to say um, why is, why can't I say this? Why, um, I'm not, you know, challenge those underlying assumptions, give examples. Um, so that's, that's, that's my approach to things. I generally like, I've, it takes a lot to, to offend me. Like if you intentionally try to do something harmful, that's different than like, I'm genuinely, I don't know something. I'll actually sit down and talk to you if you want. So I think right. just to have those conversations, conversations with race, um, gender, you know, that's, um, sexual orientation those things are very tough yep. conversations um, but we need to have those conversations so is there anything you feel like we didn't touch on mm. that we can add um, in that we can add in or do you feel like we had like a full conversation mm. how are you feeling <laughs> yeah I think we think we touched on a lot of things I guess one thing I would want to squeeze in there um, is mm -hmm. um generalizations are also harmful um yes um so even understanding that in general like for example the black community tends to be more vaccine hesitant however mm -hmm. there might be some black communities that are actually at a norm average or higher level of vaccine hesitancy there might be some black communities uh with better health outcomes than the average population uh but as a as a group um and that's that group level metric shows that the the systems that we live in operate in are in, targeted towards doing harm to certain groups as opposed to others and that's why you see um at a population level a lot of these um issues that we see but i would just say that not every black person you meet is going to have a negative health outcome um not every white person is going to have a positive health outcome because they're white 
Um, these are generalizations that help us to um, see trends and patterns, but that's kind of to the extent in which you can read into those um, metrics. So I would just caution against generalizing. Generalizing is a starting place. You have to realize if it's um, generalizing is harmful. There's some generalization that's harmful, and then there's some that can be helpful in making your decision, but you have to um, check those biases and all those assumptions. Yep. Um, always so that's what i would leave with you know after the interview i was really curious to find out if there is an actual number available between how many countries collect health statistics based on race and ethnic data and i want to kind of explain i was surprised in the interview to find out that canada didn't collect that information not because i think affluent countries are superior to developing countries, but because affluent countries have more resources available to them. So it's surprising to me that if you have the resources available that you wouldn't collect that data because it, you know, knowing how helpful it is in the United States to be able to target specific issues, like getting to the upstream, the root of an issue that certain vulnerable populations face and being able to create programs that impact the health status of individuals and prevention of death and everything it's just it's so beneficial to me that I didn't think that it was a reality that there are countries that choose not to do it but it makes sense now right after that and I think you know the COVID crisis is something that will change that conversation not only in vaccine hesitancy anti-vaxxers but also potentially the way we collect this information in other countries right and i think i was equally surprised yeah. i my i also had a reaction we had no idea yeah. yeah and i think part of it for me was that even when you consider the negatives mm-hmm. that gordon mentioned yeah. we're used to hearing about that so much in the states right that it just feels like matter of fact and this is how it is and so it was surprising that our neighbor to the north (laughs) who is also affluent as a nation doesn't do that exact same protocol or those exact same things Um, and and to me who is less for lack of a better word literate in public health than you oh my gosh I'm not dumb I'm not trying to dumb myself down we don't need to have that conversation No, I wouldn't. Let's just get this clear. I would not have started a public health podcast with you (laughs) if I did not feel like you were informed. You are so... I I think I was telling you the other day that people pay, like, so much money to have the education and knowledge you have about this (laughs) subject, and I'm so shocked that you literally don't have a background in it because I feel like you know, like, so much. I mean, I'm very flattered, but, like, but, I mean, in terms of like a statistic or program understanding I don't have that yeah like in terms of political personal community understanding I feel like that makes more sense to me and that's where like my knowledge lies but I had no idea that there wouldn't be countries that wouldn't do that like it just seems so obvious to me I mean specifically countries that have the resources yes if like countries don't have the resources that would be really yes. ridiculous yeah but yes um, because when you don't have as many resources you can't, you can't do extra that system doesn't yeah. work yeah so um it was very surprising but it was you know it was such a great 
um, interview and I, I can't believe, you know, social media has just been the driving force behind how we are connecting with everyone and um, feeling the strength of yeah. the community. It's, it's funny, like, in the last couple months, I feel like our yeah. reach has actually it's grown a lot. gone past like we keep saying, our little apartment where we're in the living room. <laughs> like, we actually are feeling like we're part of the community in a special way In a now. global way. We're connecting, yeah. I mean, with Canada. We've reached out to someone in England. We have yeah. listeners in China. And it's yeah. just really incredible. So, I, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I think for me personally, I'm very excited to see where this goes because we have a lot to say and... This could be a really big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, oh, before we cheers yes. to, we did want to mention the documentary that you brought oh, up right. in the interview is called Unnatural Causes. It's a great documentary. We, you could not think of it I couldn't think offhand, of the name. but we made sure to look it up in case anybody is interested in Side checking note, that out. I wish, when I, I know I always talk about being in public health school, but I wish when I went through school that I would have literally had a separate list somewhere where I wrote down the names of all the documentaries I watched because they were all so incredible. And I'm so that mad. wouldn't be a list because you also watch documentaries for fun. It would right. be like a novel. <laughs> like this is my journal of documentaries <laughs> and my five star reviews on my, them. my nerdy Excel spreadsheet. Like, <laughs> documentaries during the weekdays and the weekends. <laughs> month week by week, month by month. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so I guess we should just say cheers to our first interview yeah and to gordon we're so happy we got to speak with you right. and and to the public health community yeah we love you guys we sure do cheers cheers